I invite you to open your Bibles with me to a couple of passages of Scripture that we will read, and then we will gather our hearts once more at the throne of grace, and then we will commence our study this morning. Please open your Bibles, first of all, to Isaiah chapter 6. Prophet Isaiah is transported by vision into the very throne room of God. And he records here the sights and the sounds that thrilled his soul. Chapter 6 and verse 1, I'll be reading through verse 5. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Now turn, if you would, from this exalted scene to the Lord of hosts made flesh, speaking to a crowd that's gathered around him to hear his word. Under these circumstances, that is the circumstances of the scribes and the Pharisees being very hostile to him, trying to trap him, plotting against him, catch him in something that he might say previously. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, He began saying to his disciples, First of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, what what you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed, Upon the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom you are to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, Fear Him. Let's pray.
Our Father, we have just read of the account of a prophet who was transported by vision into your awful presence, writing down things for us, things that we should see with the eyes of faith, you high and lifted up. Indeed, the train of your robe filling the temple, seraphim flying around you, covering their feet and covering their eyes, flying. We pray, our Father, that we would see ourselves as the righteous man Isaiah saw himself as a man of unclean lips, dwelling amongst a people of unclean lips, that we would sense something of your awful majesty, that we would sense that you are here in our presence as you have promised so to be wherever even two or three are gathered together in your name, there you promise to be. And indeed, hearing the Lord Jesus Christ speak about the kind of fear that we should have of you, a proper fear of you who can after killing the body, cast both body and soul into everlasting burnings. That we would have no pretense before you. We would be honest like Isaiah and confess that we have unclean lips, we have unclean hearts, that we have unclean lives, and we need that coal that came from on high to touch our lips. We need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to be made new creatures, forgiven of our sins, and have ourselves clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. And so to that end, we pray that you would humble us this morning. You would enable us to hear the engrafted word which is able to save our souls so that we would live in a proper fear of you, that we would not have that slavish dread that the hammer is one day going to come down upon us because we are guilty. But Lord, might we have that sense that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ and therefore know that we are at peace with you and we are able to look at life and look at eternity with hope, knowing that your wrath has been satisfied upon your Son for our sins. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Now turn back in your Bibles, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. We're looking at Proverbs Prologue, that is the preface to the whole book. And we're looking at the pious principle that is essential to true wisdom. Indeed, to all godly and Christian living. In verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And after considering a definition of what the fear of the Lord is and those fundamental elements that belong to it, asking what privileges belong to those who fear the Lord, what duties are required of those who fear the Lord, and then considering characteristics that mark those who fear the Lord, after looking then at some misconceptions regarding the fear of the Lord, we come this morning 
to answer the question, and we can only do so in part suggestively and not exhaustively, answering that question, how do we learn the fear of the Lord? Well, brethren, essential to knowing God is reverence for God. And essential to reverence for God is knowing God. And therefore, the more deeply we revere Him, the better we come to know Him. And we expand our knowledge and fear of God as we ponder the things of God. That is, what the Bible teaches about God's character and His conduct, who He is and what He has done and is still doing in the lives of His people. C.S. Lewis presents us with a wonderful illustration of the intimate and necessary relationship between knowing God and fearing God in a conversation in his captivating story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I break in. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan? said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He is the king. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking... They're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. Well, we're going to look at some reasons for fearing God this morning. The one who isn't safe, but is good. So first of all, we fear the Lord as we ponder His glorious perfections. We're going to see that we come to fear God as we ponder His glorious perfections and as we ponder His wonderful works. God's perfections are His glorious attributes. To use theological language, God's attributes are revealed in the Bible. They are infinite. They are eternal. Some of His attributes are on display in creation for all men to see, such as His eternal power and divine nature, which the Apostle Paul says are clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. 
Other perfections are revealed in His providence, called by the Apostle the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, such as His daily provisions by which He blesses all men, and those provisions should likewise call us to repentance. Still other of God's glorious perfections, indeed the most magnificent of all, most obviously are His works of redemption in the planning, in the accomplishment, in the application of salvation, most obviously in calling dead, guilty sinners from deadness and sin to life and righteousness in Christ. All of God's acts in creation, in providence, and in redemption give us a glimpse of His glorious character. They all conspire together to bring those like ourselves who are natively have no fear of God before our eyes to come to experience the true fear of God. This holy fear, the Bible teaches, is the very heartbeat of the Christian life. Indeed, both perfected saints and holy angels in heaven worship in the fear of God. We read this in Psalm 89, verses 6 through 8 where the psalmist asks, For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all those who are around Him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like Thee, O mighty God? Thy faithfulness also surrounds Thee. Now, as we consider how we are to stimulate ourselves to the fear of God by pondering His glorious perfections, notice, first of all, we learn the fear of God as we ponder His infinite holiness. As we ponder His infinite holiness. Isaiah, writing two chapters later from what we read, Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 13 Isaiah writes, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and He shall be your fear, and He shall be your dread. And we see Isaiah practicing what he preaches two chapters earlier, as his knees are knocking, and he causes to fall on his face before the Lord of hosts who is high and lifted up. Brethren, God's holiness, His absolute moral purity, and His infinite separation from His creation should inspire fear within our hearts. He is God, and we are not, and He is this kind of God. Indeed, God's holiness inspires reverential fear among the singing host in heaven. Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? That's the great question. Who will not fear this kind of God and glorify his name? Are you out there? Are you in here this morning? 
The reason is given, for thou alone art holy, for all the nations will come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. Brethren, we live in God's fear to the degree that we are overwhelmed by a sense of his holiness. He is absolutely holy. We are perfectly unholy. And the great difference between the two should make us fear this God. Secondly, as we consider and ponder his glorious perfections, we learn to fear God as we ponder his singular greatness and awesome righteousness. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 17. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Who is this one that we are to fear? Whose ways are we to walk in? Who is this one that we are to love and to serve with all of the totality of our being? Verse 17, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Isn't that said of Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2? He is the only God. He is the only Lord. The great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Even God himself is not above his law. His character is reflected in what he commands of men and the very basis of his judgment of men, especially upon the last day. So why should we fear the Lord our God? Why should we walk in his ways? Why should we love and serve him with all of our heart, with all of our being? Because, brethren, this is the only God, the impartial and righteous God who only does what is right. Remember what Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It was for this reason that Abraham feared his God. This is the God with whom we have to do. As dependent creatures, should we not fear him who made us? As needy sinners, should we not fear him who will judge us? He is the awesome God who does only righteousness. This is the God before whom we will one day stand and give an account of our lives, who will judge all men, including ourselves, with perfect equity and give us what we deserve in grace, or what we don't deserve in grace through Jesus Christ. And brethren, if you will not receive what he has to offer you in grace, he will give you what you deserve in justice. We either fear him as our God today or we will be terrified of him and terrorized by him on the great day. Thirdly, we learn the fear to we learn to fear God as we ponder his unfailing goodness. 1 Samuel 12 and verse 24. You might not think, well, if we look at his goodness, that isn't going to inspire fear. It should. If you consider who you are and what you deserve from God, 
Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. Now, if you're like me, you easily take for granted all the blessings that you receive. You forget that you receive them, and you forget whom you receive them, from whom you receive them. Now, why should we fear and serve the Lord in truth with all of our heart? Consider what great things your good God has done for you. So we sing, count your blessings, name them one by one, and then you will see all of the good things that God has done. As you recall the great things God has done for you, you will grow in fear of Him. Look around you. Look at your life. Look at all of your blessings. If you would increase in your fear of God, often ponder the great things He has done for you. But maybe you've walked away from God. His unfailing goodness is a powerful motive to return to Him. So the prophet Hosea prophesied of a repentant, wayward Israel who had left God and then, focusing upon His goodness, drew them back to Him. Hosea 3 and verse 5, Afterward the sons of Israel, now they've been carried off captive, planted around in various nations. Afterward, after God's done judging them and and dealing with them according to their sins. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord. What, fearful that the hammer's going to fall? No, the hammer's already fallen, and God has dealt with them. They will come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness in the last days. No, it's God's goodness that brings us to repentance. It's God's goodness that brings us back to Him. As we contemplate God's goodness to us, we should be drawn to Him in grateful worship. I like the way the hymn writer puts it. When all thy mercies, O my God, my rising soul surveys, transported with the view I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise. Fourthly, we learn to fear God as we ponder His astonishing forgiveness. Indeed, this last point points us to this one, does it not? Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If all of my sins were to be lined up, and if all of them were to point their finger at me, how could I stand before you? Everyone is a testimony of my guilt before you and my liability to your just judgment. Verse 4, But there is forgiveness with thee. All of these iniquities. Forgiveness. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. You see, the forgiveness of God should not make us flippant, but should inspire fear within our hearts. 
We should not be like those who say, shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live any longer in it? Now, if you've been forgiven by God, it's not going to create a desire to just go out and sin just willy-nilly. Oh, God is a God of grace. He's forgiven me of my sin. No, when God forgives your sin, you fear Him. Imagine yourself standing before God dressed in nothing but your sin. If you're not a Christian covered by the blood and righteousness of Christ, this is exactly how God sees you. How tragic is the case of those who know nothing about or worse, reject the forgiveness of sins offered by God to those who embrace Jesus Christ and who trust in His sacrifice. They thumb their nose at God. They don't want His forgiveness. They want to continue going on in sin. Increasing their guilt before God. Brethren, because we are disabled by sin, none of us will seek God's pardoning mercy until He first lays hold of us by grace and grants us faith in Jesus Christ. We don't run toward Him, we run away from Him. And the fact that He is a forgiving God of the likes of people like you and me, this is amazing grace indeed. Let me ask you, are you able to count your sins, even the ones that you know of? The Lord knows their number. He knows the wrath He will inflict upon you if you die without His pardon. Oh, may the Lord open your eyes as He did David's eyes to see your sins so that you too will seek His pardon. Psalm 40 and verse 12. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. I am blinded by the sight of my sins. They are so many I'm being washed away in a tidal wave of iniquity. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head. And my heart has failed me. This is the one whose grace is greater than all of our sin. The God that we're speaking of that should inspire fear within our hearts. So we should sing if we're God's true people, having been forgiven of our sins. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. May you come to grips with your guilt on account of your numberless sins against God. But don't stop at conviction of sin. Run to Him on the feet of faith and repentance and receive forgiveness at the foot of the cross. May you reckon the greatness of God's forgiving mercy by entrusting your soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. Either you will be punished for your sin, or you will trust Him who is punished for the sins of all who come to Him. 
Remember, he, he is not safe, but he's good. So we learn to fear the Lord as we ponder his glorious perfection. Secondly, we learn to fear the Lord as we ponder his wonderful works. His wonderful works. This is his glorious perfections in action. Pondering God's glorious attributes should incite holy fear, and so should contemplating his wonderful works. Brethren, if we are awed, beholding the seemingly infinite expanse of space filled with countless galaxies and billions of heavenly bodies, surely we should be awed by the one who made the universe, since he is greater than his creation. God can hold all of the infinite universe, as it were, in the hollow of his hand. So if we should be awed by his works of creation, certainly we should be awed by all of his works of providence and especially of redemption. Remember that his works are wonderful precisely because they reflect him who is wonderful. Notice, first of all, we learn to fear God as we ponder his awe-inspiring self-revelation. God's self-revelation is his word. And I suggest to you that his word, written and incarnate, that is his greatest work. The infant nation Israel trembled before God as he spoke his holy law amidst booming thunder, flashing lightning, thick smoke, the ground shaking beneath the feet of those who heard his law. But knowing that Israel would soon forget these awesome signs, God warned them to continue fearing him who spoke to them. Why? To test their obedience to his word. Exodus 20 and verse 20. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you. Don't cringe before him in servile fear. Look to him who spoke. Might that fear of God that moves you to obedience be that which fills your heart, in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. Now, brethren, we weren't at Mount Sinai. We didn't witness the inauguration of the Old Covenant with its terrible signs. But we are under no less obligation to bow in humble fear before God who inaugurated the new covenant with the blood of His Son. Indeed, our greater privileges before God should inspire deeper reverence before God as we gather under the shadow of the cross. It should inspire holy gratitude and fear. Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 21 through 28. This is the reasoning of the writer to the Hebrews. As he co compares and contrasts the giving of, of the first covenant and the giving of the new covenant. And so terrible, verse 21, was the, was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you writing to his readers, but you have come to Mount Zion, 
and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Therefore, yeah, we shouldn't fear God anymore, should we? We're under the new covenant. See to it, verse 25, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Sounds like Exodus 20, verse 20, doesn't it? But if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that is God through the mouth of Moses, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven, that is Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And that is the things of the new covenant. Therefore, since we have received a covenant, or a kingdom, excuse me, which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. You see, greater privilege confers greater responsibility. If God commanded Israel to receive his revelation of the law on Mount Sinai with reverence and awe, how much more does Jesus require that his worship be conducted with the fear due his name? Brethren, I believe that the modern church needs to hear this message. We need to be reminded of this sobering lesson. Fear, not frivolity, is God's due. We must fear lest we bring destruction upon ourselves. Our God, even Jesus, is a consuming fire. Secondly, we learn to fear God as we ponder His miraculous deliverances. Israel learned to fear and believe in the Lord as they witnessed His awesome destruction of the Egyptians as he marvelously delivered them at the Red Sea, Exodus 14 and verse 31. And when Israel saw the great power of which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. They had been complaining before, what's going to happen now? We've got the Red Sea on one side, we've got, the, we've got Pharaoh and his armies breathing down our necks, what's going to happen well, God opened a way. His great power was evident. The people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. And I just want to say by way of a footnote, fear, fearing the Lord and believing the Lord, the, these are two sides of the same coin. 
They believed, they feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God's miraculous deliverance inspired Moses' spontaneous praise. Well, the bodies of the Egyptians were yet bloating and floating on the Red Sea. He compared the Almighty God of Israel with the impotent false gods that couldn't help the defeated Egyptians. And he asked the question in Exodus 15, verse 11, Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Moses said that on all of those plagues, Jehovah judged the gods of the Egyptians. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Joshua later urged Israel to recall God's miracle of the Red Sea, and more recently at the River Jordan, to inspire holy fear in the hearts of the children of Israel all the days of their lives. Joshua 4, verses 23 and 24. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done at the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we all crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. We're a forgetful people. And you read over and over and over through the prophets that they returned the people of Israel that they were preaching to back to those significant delivering events of the Red Sea and of the, the Jordan, and then later prophets to the return of the exiles from Babylonian captivity. We are a delivered people. If you're a Christian here this morning, consider your great deliverance. God rescued you from your sin. He rescued you from Satan. He rescued you from hell. He did so by the almighty power of His grace through His Son. And a delivered people are to be a fearing people. The message for us is clear. Let us regularly recall God's delivering mercies if we would live in His fear, especially when we are tempted to doubts and crippling fears. If God has delivered you from your sins by Jesus Christ, shouldn't you trust Him and love Him and serve Him and fear Him? Thirdly, we learn to fear God as we ponder His distinguishing love. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. When we get to be arrogant, think that we're really something special in ourselves, go back to passages like this. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord 
brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God set his distinguishing love upon you. He made you to differ from all the other nations. You were the smallest, you were the weakest, you were the most pitiable, and God delivered you to himself by the power of his sovereign love and made you his people. Let's think about that. Think about the persons of the Godhead and their work showing their distinguishing love. Brethren, if you would fear God, ponder the electing love of God the Father. What more powerful incentive could we possibly have to fear God than the marvel of His sovereign distinguishing grace? Think of who you were when God saved you. Think of who you are by nature and what your sin has made you by way of your rebellion against this good God who has forever loved you in Jesus Christ. Brethren, what love is this? What does this sovereign Gracious God say to the objects of his sovereign affection, Jeremiah 31 and verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. If you would fear God, often contemplate the love of the Father in choosing you, also in adopting you and reconciling you to himself, calling you into covenant fellowship with him, what impact should this have? Second Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Dear ones, we show that we take seriously that we are God's beloved people by our diligent pursuit of holiness, and that as we are motivated by the fear of God. Further, if you would fear God, contemplate the redeeming love of God the Son in purchasing you with His sacrificial blood, paying for your sins as the sinless one, the just for the unjust, that He might bring you to God. 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 19. And if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear. This is the disposition of the Christian pilgrim. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. And so how do you conduct yourselves in fear during your Christian pilgrimage? What must you know if you are to fear? knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You weren't bought with all of the gold of Fort Knox or with the riches of Elon Musk or anyone else. You were bought with something far more valuable than all of the riches in this world. but with precious blood, that's what you were purchased with, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Consider the infinite cost of your redemption, how that speaks of the love of Christ. And were we not, yet, were we not reminded earlier this morning, we love him because he first loved us. 
If you would fear God, thirdly, contemplate the, the comforting love of God the Holy Spirit, who has sealed you for the day of redemption. The lover of our soul is our comforter. Romans 5 and verse 5. The love of God which has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We know the love of God by the presence and power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We know that we are loved because of His ministry within our own hearts. That's why Luke writes what he does in Acts 9 and verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You see, how can those two things mix? Aren't they like water and, and oil? Fear of God? Comfort of the Holy Spirit? No, the two come together in the experience of the true Christian. So contemplate the love of the triune God if you would grow in the fear of God. Ponder often your election by the Father, your redemption by the Son, and your regeneration by the Spirit. Paul brings all those together in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Reminding them what they were and what he was before they were visited by the saving grace of God. For we also once were foolish ourselves disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, this is, the God, this is God the Father. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, because we haven't done such deeds. We've only sinned. But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He, that is the Father, poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Brethren, as I put this message together, I realize that a large part of my problems do, are due to the fact that I don't think enough about God and what He has done for me. Motives for fearing God lie chiefly in the contemplation of God. But we cannot fear Him whom we do not know, and so we must first know Him. And the better we know Him, the more deeply we will fear Him. And the more deeply we fear Him, the more vigorously we will love and serve Him. It all runs together. It's all dependent upon our conception of God. And so we confess our deficiency in song. I appreciate the honesty of this hymn writer. We have not feared thee as we ought, nor bowed beneath thine awful eye, nor guarded deed and word and thought, remembering that God was nigh. Lord, give us faith to know thee near and grant us the grace of holy fear. So what does that say to us by way of a few words of concluding application. First, a word of observation. We learn to fear God to the degree that we fill our minds 
with thoughts of his glorious perfections and marvelous works. Our fear of God will be in direct proportion to our knowledge of God's glorious character and marvelous works. The better we know the Lord, the more we will live in the comfort of his fear. And therefore, any theology, especially you young men, listen up. Any theology that merely fills the head with facts about God that doesn't also overwhelm the heart with the experimental impact of these glorious truths, it's worse than useless. Now, why do I say that? Well, it may make us educated formalists, but never humble worshipers. Better to live up to what you know than to fill your head with things about God and it doesn't have any impact upon your life. Without nourishing our soul upon these glorious truths about God, there will be no vibrant fear of the Lord which provides the spiritual energy for living the Christian life. Contemplation of God's glorious character and awesome acts should fill our hearts with awe and work in us a deepening desire to please Him in all things and likewise with a deepening dread of offending Him in anything. Do you reflect upon the character and attributes of God when facing temptation? Do you take this God into your temptation? Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. See, even there we're focused upon God. Are we not? Greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. Greater is the power of our redeemed humanity than our remaining flesh. God, we need to focus upon the Lord and draw from His power. Other Christians seem to walk the pilgrim path in quiet desperation. Their heads hang down, plagued with doubts, dogged by fears, going about dejected and troubled. Brethren, this is as sad as it is unnecessary. When we're like this, we're living beneath our means and privileges. If, you, if this is you, you've lost your sight of God. You've forgotten His glorious character and His mighty works. Let us take to heart the words of another hymn writer. Fear Him, ye saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Make you His service your delight. He'll make your wants His care. Secondly, a word of admonition. You'll continue fretting about present trials and worrying about the future, about future challenges until you learn to fear the Lord. Let me ask you, do you fret? Do you worry? Well, I suggest that you've taken your eyes off of your glorious Lord. Learn to fear Him who is as good as He is great, as kind as He is sovereign. Like the Apostle John, recline on the bosom of Christ in peace and trust. You say, these things are beyond me, Lord. I, 
I'm going to lay my head, as it were, upon your breast by faith. I'm going to look up into the eyes of Jesus Christ. I hear all these things that trouble my soul. But one look at the Savior gives me the strength to know that I'm not without power. And then I can carry on in His grace. So when we take our eyes off the Lord, no wonder we fall prey to crippling doubts and anxiety. Let us learn to fear the one who ever loves us, who moment by moment takes care of us, who will never leave us or forsake us, but will ever uphold us and care for us. Let us learn to trust him for his grace. Let us draw comfort from the testimony of one who knew God well and lived in his fear, even as we should. Psalm 103. Listen to David. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. The heavens above the earth, seeming an expanse that can't be measured, so great is the love of God for those who fear him. Look out into space and remember that God's love for you is greater than the distance between you and the farthest star. Verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children, arguing again from the lesser to the greater, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Human fathers fail. They can't provide all that a child might want. But God can provide more than we need. He can do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Verse 17, But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. His loyal covenant love, His chesed, is from everlasting to everlasting. That's one end of eternity, and there ain't no end. To the the other end of eternity, likewise, no end. His loving kindness is to those who fear Him. Is it ever going to end? Is he ever going to run out of loving kindness? Are you finally going to come to the end of it? God is infinite, and so is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. Brethren, I think we need a bigger God, don't we? We need the God of the Bible. We limit him, and he is limitless in his goodness and kindness to his people. Finally, a word of consolation. If you would fear God, take to heart God's faithful covenant promise that he will keep you in his fear and do you good forever. Jeremiah 32 and verse 40. This is the promise to those who are in the new covenant. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. That's the promise that God gives to all that are in the new covenant. He gives them, He plants His fear in their hearts so that we will not leave Him. 
There's the promise of the perseverance of the saints right there. And we won't leave him because he won't leave us. I conclude with the words of the hymn writer. In all thy deeds, how great thou art, thou one true God, thy way make clear. Teach me with undivided heart to trust thy truth, thy name to fear. Let's pray. Our Father, we have been reminded afresh that we do not live up to our privileges in Jesus Christ. Indeed, we, as it were, live in a room filled with all kinds of precious gems and metals, and our pockets are empty. We have all of these precious promises, all that are yea and amen in Jesus Christ, and we go about kicking stones with our heads hanging down, forgetting that we are the sons of of royalty, divine royalty, princes and princesses, children of the King. We have all of these precious truths and realities that should inspire a holy fear and encouragement within our hearts. So Lord, help us to walk in your fear. Help us to treasure these truths. Help us to look to you from whence our help comes, to focus our attention upon who you are and what you have done for your people in all times and in our lives and your promise to keep so doing to the day that we leave this life and enter into the presence of Jesus Christ himself. Lord, help us to realize that we are fabulously rich people. like the Queen of Sheba who went to Solomon and she saw all of those things that it says it knocked the wind out of her and she said not the half was told her. Lord, if that was true of her witnessing the riches and wisdom of the great king, oh Lord, how our hearts should be thrilled as we come to your word and we learn things far more glorious about the one who loved us and gave himself for us, lives within us and will one day usher us into his presence. Help us to come to better know him, to walk in deeper fear, and to enjoy the comfort of the Holy Spirit. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.